Hello, my name's Violet Luca, and I'm the digital editor of Film Comment. Growing up, I was told that there are three things you should never discuss at dinner. Politics, religion, and money. Given the ubiquity and passion of social media posts about that first topic, it doesn't seem like most people are worried about being impolite anymore. Nor do any of us, film critics, filmmakers, film fans, have the option of avoiding the implications of the election entirely. In the first part of this special double episode on aesthetics and politics, I was joined by Jay Hoberman, critic for the New York Times, and Toby Hazlett, a writer who has contributed to Art Forum, The Village Voice, and N Plus One, to discuss films that they view differently after the election. In the second, I was joined by Fariha Saban, critic, filmmaker, and production manager for Field of Vision, and Mina Sarani Linda Marugan, assistant professor in the Department of Communication and Media Studies at Fordham University, to focus on issues of representation and what the future means for filmmakers and their creative process. My name is Violet Luca. I'm the digital editor. I was born in Ann Arbor, Michigan. I grew up in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, and my father was born in Ponce, Puerto Rico, and my mother was born in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. I'm Jim Hoberman. I was born in Brooklyn, New York. Uh, I grew up in Queens, and uh, my parents were born in um, the Bronx and Brooklyn, respectively. I'm Toby Hazlitt. I was born in Manhattan, New York, grew up many places, including Miami and Indianapolis. My mother was born in Nigeria. My father was born in the United Kingdom. Obviously, right now, everyone has a lot to say. They've always had a lot to say, but especially now, it was something that was unforeseeable by literally everyone in the media, everyone who had sort of a voice, and they're still allowed to sort of keep talking about why they were wrong and diagnosing large segments of the population they have never met and coming up with reasons as to why and what it means. But we can't not avoid talking about this, obviously. It feels weird to sort of add to the noise. But I don't think that is what we're going to do in this episode. I think what we're going to try and do is just focus on the election. And so today I've asked people to sort of talk about films that they've come to understand differently following the election. Like the day after I started we watching um, Berlin Alexanderplatz. <laughs> um, you can sort of maybe guess my political feelings if you're familiar with that title you know it's a film that's based on uh alfred doblin novel it's set in the you know the alexanderplatz neighborhood of berlin and it's the novel itself is very like it's sort of joycean in a certain respect where it's using all these different voices and sort of rhythms and perspectives simultaneously happening and fassbender's adaptation is this huge 15 hour uh, made-for-TV film. He does, a, he does a smart thing where he makes it very much his own. It's not a literal transposition of the book, but it still gets lots of things right about the book. It's, it's about this guy, Franz Biberkopf, who was released from jail, and he's just a low-level level thug, and he's just sort of trying to get by, and at first he promises to go straight. He can't do it. Falls back into the underworld. He loses an arm. He basically he becomes a pimp for his, his live-in girlfriend, and then She's murdered, and then uh, he goes nuts. And in the final episode, because this is set during the Weimar years, sort of the tail end of the Weimar years, Fassbinder adds in delirium fantasia, where which involves you know brown shirts and a Nazi puppet and all sorts of things. So 
I think that, you know, I'm not going to say that the U.S. is in a Weimar, was experienced some sort of Weimar era, but I think that we're always on the cusp of, <laughs> it just goes to show you that we're always on the cusp of any sort of huge political moment. What were some other films that you guys were thinking of? Like everybody, I naturally thought of um, A Face in the Crowd, which mm-hmm. is relevant now. It's been relevant practically uh, every election or every other presidential election since it came out in 1957. So nothing new to say there. Yeah. Uh, you know, a, a demagogue rises to power through a combination of horrible hillbilly songs and television. Um, I also probably, like many people, thought of Idiocracy, Mm -hmm. which really is just the title alone. I mean, it's (laughs) nothing specific about the movie, just the the situation and the title. It also occurred to me that The Birth of a Nation, the original one, is still Mm -hmm. the movie that people uh, need to see and, and come to terms with if they want to understand America and um, the uh, capacity for um, denial and, um, you know, the, the, the desire to believe things that aren't true and, mm-hmm. and so on. There were then a bunch of other movies that I thought of. Well, first of all, let me ask you. I mean, uh, I could only come up with one movie that seemed to not even predict but seemed to feature Trump or a Trump-like character, and that's Gremlins too. But I'm right. I, but I'm, he's also sort of supposed to be like Ted Turner because he's doing the stuff with the movies. Yeah, but his name is Clamp, isn't right. it? Yeah, I mean, Clump, he's Clump. Clump, right? Yes. And he's, and he's, a, he's, a, he's a builder, you know. And yes, yes. So I don't know if there are any others. I mean, there are plenty of movies with plutocrats, but I don't right. know if there are any movies where meet John Doe. Does the plutocrat come to power? I mean, that's I can't think of any movies. There should be some. Mm-hmm. But I, I I haven't been able to think of any. Right. When I was originally reaching out to you, you had something interesting to point out. And I think, you know, sort of talking about how different presidents have used different mediums like FDR, utilized the radio. Another super rich guy with inherited wealth who was like, other oh, rich people hate me. Don't worry about it, guys. And people loved it. And, it, you know, it was, it was ultimately very good for the country. JFK utilized TV. And then Reagan movies. And then Trump, as you say, utilized Twitter, even though a lot of people who voted for him probably are not on Twitter. I beg to differ, but you I, would vote? Okay. Yes, I, <laughs> I guess my inclination is always to flee to the world of nonfiction film. But yeah. I guess a few movies I had to reassess. First, Adam Curtis's hypernormalization, yes. which I <laughs> found compelling but also a bit too slick for my taste. And I, mm-hmm. I, when I initially saw it, I thought that it was unspeakably tidy, that it ends with mm-hmm. this kind of doomsaying rhetoric about Brexit and Trump. Mm-hmm. Of course, now I'm eating my words, and <laughs> it seems like the catastrophe, sorry, you can't see this, but I'm making air quotes, um, <laughs> the catastrophe of bad media predictions, which has resulted in this quote-unquote shock to the liberal elite. Right is entirely what's being theorized in that film. Mm-hmm. Whether or not I would theorize it precisely the same way is immaterial. <laughs> um, but the idea that we actually have been consenting to live in a fake political world in which only surface tensions are given any credence, mm-hmm. in my opinion, I think that he would do well to 
incorporate a psychoanalytic reading. I think that it would (laughs) really protect him from some of the lapses in reasoning that I think also define that film. But hypernormalization is something that I now have to grudgingly, horrifyingly respect (laughs) as a, a good predictor of our political situation. But I was also thinking of Black Audio Film Collective's uh, Handsworth Songs, mm. obviously made in the 80s under Thatcherism in the United Kingdom, but there are some parts of the narrating voice that I think are eerily similar to what we're experiencing now. I mean, there's a really amazing part where um, the, the camera's just on a city street in Birmingham, and the voice says something about the melodrama of consent, mm. that if... This was the beginning of the new black, the unclubbables, the black of disorder and mayhem. Mm-hmm. And that if you don't forego, the, I think the line is, um, if you don't forego these orgies of arson and murderous assault, you will see a paramilitary invasion unknown in mainland Britain. And this is actually somebody who is much more respectable (laughs) than Donald Trump, at least according to the most surface measures. It's interesting to think of the ways in which nonfiction film can or cannot maybe predict or in some ways reflect or be incisive about a political situation Mm -hmm. that on the one hand is obviously boiling with these unspoken (laughs) energies that are just begging for some sort of violent articulation. And on the other hand, I mean, a political situation that seems superficially placid. The fact that I, as someone who is hardly admiring of Hillary Clinton. Just mm-hmm. assume that the liberal technocracy would be enthroned yet again. Right. Is really challenging to me. No. I mean, it, it's, it's intellectually humiliating, <laughs> um, to say the least, that for so long I'd thought that the real purpose of whatever analytical powers I had was to decode the intricate <laughs> vocabulary of liberal hypocrisy right. when of course there is obviously this kind of purloined letter of fascist threat and I think that Hansworthong actually it moves very elegantly between images of violence crisis and then the kind of pacifying rhetoric that seeks to control it but of course makes it possible. I'm thinking in terms of, of mass fantasies uh, you know that might have anticipated Trump, and it seems to me that it's it's really a, it's something that uh, Hollywood or whatever, however you want to define the uh, uh, entertainment complex here could not really visualize. I mean, there was an yeah. attempt to make the Sinclair Lewis novel. It can't happen here in the '30s when it would have been extremely relevant. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't remember. I think that MGM that maybe Louis B. Mayer stopped it. I mean, there's a story behind it that, that it, that why it wasn't made. Well, they were, I mean, Hollywood, I should say, to point yeah. out liberal hypocrisy. Yeah. Historically, a lot of the studio heads were in like active sort of communication with Italy's government and be like, well, we can't be too hard on these guys, you mm. know? Obviously, yeah. I mean, Harry Cohn had a picture of Mussolini in his yes <laughs> in his in his office. But even so, I mean, I think that that if it seemed like it was going to be a a hit, a blockbuster, they would have done it. Maybe the, the the point is that it didn't come into existence. And if I'm not mistaken, there are some Philip K. Dick novels which are similar. I mean, the, the Three Stigmata of Poem or Eldridge isn't that something where the guy is constantly on television and you don't see him and it's 
It also occurred to me that something I thought of, which I hadn't thought about in a long time, was the was the Terry Southern novel, The Magic Christian. Yes. And that was made into a really terrible movie. Yes. It was a vehicle. <laughs> it was conceived of as a vehicle for Ringo Starr, and it's it's actually worse than Candy. Yeah. So I haven't. I know it's kind of impressive. <laughs> yeah, I think it's out somewhere, right? But no, yeah, I've seen. I've definitely seen, seen it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I've seen both, yeah. and I can say definitively. Um, <laughs> but the 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 only movie that I was interested to see because of that, which I think was one of your questions, or the, what I thought of again, and this connects to something which I, you know, maybe we could talk about later. It was that um, the adventures of Ford Fairlane. And the reason for that is because at some point during the summer, it occurred to me, and I think probably a lot of people, mm-hmm. that uh, the person who, that, that Trump was basically doing an arena tour, stand-up right. arena tour, and, uh, you know, sort of, of a kind of insult comedy, but not even insult, you know, just, you know, this kind of provocative uh, stupidity and that that Andrew Dice Clay was was the mm-hmm. was the model for this. Yeah. And uh, of course they had a run in mm-hmm. on the um celebrity apprentice <laughs> where actually the the dice man acquitted himself kind of well, you know, by insulting Trump and getting immediately fired, but mm-hmm. um despite the fact that his career was, you know. So I I I they did make me curious. I that was the only movie of his that I could remember and of course he was a much loathed character, at least in my circles, during, you know, what when he was at his his height. But I, you know, it makes me wonder if he wasn't like a, a secret model along with Howard Stern, you know, for uh, well, for Donald. Again, to sort of pull it back to idiocracy, obviously, Beef Supreme, who is the president in that <laughs> yeah, film, yeah. Uh, a wrestler, a professional wrestler, mm-hmm. and Donald Trump spent time in the the WWE universe, let's say, uh-huh. whatever you want to call that. Yeah. And there's a thing in wrestling called kayfab, and that is the practice of where you pretend like the drama that you're acting out is real. And he, and a lot of the things that he did rhetorically, I'm not the first person to point this out, bear a very strong similarity to that, especially uh, in regards to this is all rigged. You know, mm-hmm. I can't win. I'm when I don't win in the fall, and you know, you guys are gonna know what to do. Like. Like that sort of that abuse, that sort of mm-hmm. posturing and abuse, that's like very much taken from wrestling. And now we get to have our foreign policy filtered through that, <laughs> um, which is crazy. But I don't know. I was thinking I sort of to connect your two sort of trains of thought. Adam Curtis is a very frustrating figure for me as well, because I, you know, in college, I used to like Power of Nightmares and Century of the Self were just like such very at that time were just such like revelations to me even though there are like huge factual errors in them i think in one of them he claims that al-qaeda was invented by the cia and like it's like but what they did not like what do you mean they did not like what are you saying but uh yeah and then in this one i tried watching hypernormalization he bent the taliban yeah even though that's not you know that's but, but you know he he mixed them up. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. He does shit like that all the time. Yeah. It drives but not me insane. everyone is allowed to make such mix-ups. No, I know, <laughs> I know. But he, but because it's like he's doing sort of like what Sergei Eisenstein did, where he's doing these grand sort of overarching narratives that are very melodramatic in nature, and he totally sucks you in, and like his sort of hyper rational voiceover covers them up, like how sort of like absurd a lot of this is, and how much he is playing to your emotions hypernormalization begins with this utterly grotesque image of this giant 
blood trail going like and again you don't know where any of this is like this kind of romantic ambient indie rock place obviously it's like so like it's like really what you're trivializing this violence when supposedly what you're doing is making everybody care about this type of violence because they're under some like spell by the the power masters (laughs) these shadowy power masters that always exist but these narratives that don't exist in Hollywood anymore have sort of come filtered through culture. And now there are these very elaborate conspiracy theories where Hillary Clinton is fatally ill and she needs these magical shots. You know, that's like, that's like out of the parallax view. Like what the hell? Like what is like what are you talking? Like what is the she's faking so that Tim Kaine can be president? This smile in a suit who like speaks high school Spanish is like gonna sweep in and take part. Like what the fuck is the point of any of this? But I find that even though the movies don't necessarily predict these things, people are using those types of narratives to understand the world, and they might be getting them from like alt info sources, but they also might be getting them from like somebody like Adam Curtis. But but. The strange thing about Adam Curtis is, as I said before, the maddening slickness of his mm-hmm. reasoning, the way that it does not admit any possibility no. of faltering or complexity. But actually, another movie that was, I mean, this movie is always kind of rolling around my mind, mm-hmm. um, but that became chillingly relevant was Chris Marker's Grin Without a Cat. And there's a really, yeah. there's a really small moment. I don't know if everybody else remembers it, but uh, one of the many moments of almost comic relief is when he says, you know, this is the beginning of the new left. What people remember less is the beginning of the new right. And there's a clip of Giscard d'Estaing, this horrendously corny French politician playing the accordion and, (laughs) you know, telling a horrible joke to a room full of cigar smoking men and just slaloming down the Alps. And it's this absolutely absurd picture of contented, bourgeois masculinity that to anyone who has ever really cared about what politics is must seem ridiculous and the voiceover says i think very tellingly and chillingly for a moment back then we thought that their methods were rather poor looking back we realize they were (laughs) and that's exactly (laughs) the line that floated to mind when i was watching or attempted to watch the video of trump's acceptance speech and just the The pageantry, again, as somebody who smugly refers to himself as left of the liberal center, the pageantry of power that I'd grown suspicious of was, in this case, being suspended. That the pageant wasn't even (laughs) good. That there's actually a kind of aesthetic, I want to say an almost meta pleasure. It's not quite Brechtian, but they are taking the spectacle of authority, mm-hmm. pushing it to an absurd limit to the point where you see the ways in which it's breaking. Mm-hmm. I mean, Mike Pence's family arrayed woodenly around the podium and then the weirdly long <laughs> amount of time that it took for Donald Trump to emerge even after the camera was focused on. I mean, I don't want to fetishize this as some sort of camp object. Right. Let the listeners know I am also shaking in my proverbial boots. I mean, right. this is not interesting to me. This is not an object for the, mere delectation. Yeah, this is not a fucking game. This <laughs> like, is not, real. This is the not real the slightest but i also have to take the aesthetic dimension seriously and i wonder what kind of complex inarticulable pleasure is coming from this really slipshod performance Mm -hmm. well i would say i mean this is trump is not the first professional uh, uh performer to be elected president of the united states but trump is not ronald reagan and you know reagan in his mediocre way uh, which probably in the end helped him, was able to embody, you know, the whole 
in industrial history of Hollywood, but maybe the 1940s, mm-hmm. and internalize it and project it out. So he knew how to hit his, his marks. He knew how to put on a show. He knew how to talk on the radio. He knew how to tell, you know, like a folks. He knew how to do all these things. Right. You know, Trump comes from really a, uh, uh, and, and I would say parenthetically, this is why I find these articles, you know, like for, oh, what does this mean for Hollywood? You know, <laughs> kind of pathetic because yeah. this is like, a, this is a form of solipsism that yeah. movies mm-hmm. even matter that much. Yeah, to people Indeed. anymore. They don't. <laughs> yeah. Surprise. You know, no, I, know. <laughs> I mean, there's more money in video games, if, right. I'm, if I'm not mistaken. So Trump is definitely a, a creature of the, the, the post Hollywood uh, constellation, which would be, I don't know, talk radio, cable, uh, TV, you know, social media, all these things, which are shoddy. In a way, they're mm-hmm. they're they're not skilled in making the kind of uh, spectacle that uh, that that Hollywood yeah. um, could. However, you know, it's I hesitate to say it's what people want, but it's what people know. Yeah. And so he, you know, and this is something that um, because I'm lazy or a snob and never saw The Apprentice or you know paid any <laughs> attention to mm-hmm. to Trump as a media. To me, he was a clown. I thought he was going to lose to. Uh, Ben Carson in, in, in Iowa, and, you know, that would be it, that his, he couldn't stand, you know, like, uh, uh, I never, you know, and I even said this in public, but that lots of people, you know, yeah. can, can, can... Thank explain. you, Pauline. Yeah, <laughs> right. Uh, yeah. You know, but, but I think that, that um, he's, he's a, uh, a very gifted demagogue, and he, you know, is completely at home with the uh, uh, the media such as it is. Another thing about the media ecologies and economies that Donald Trump has learned to exploit and exist very comfortably within is that they, like him, are purportedly populist but are actually derived from massive amounts of non-populist corporate power. Yeah. Um, and I think the that one... definition of it, like the photo, <laughs> like for me, for what you're, the kernel of what you're saying is perfectly embodied in that photo of Donald Trump and Nigel Farage standing in a gold elevator, giving a thumbs up. And like, these are the guys that are going to defeat the elites. Yeah. <laughs> like... yeah. Again, you can't see this, but I'm massaging my temple dramatically. <laughs> but you know, it's, in- it's interesting to say, I just came from a, uh, a presentation at the, the Institute for the Humanities where, a, a European scholar, and I'm embarrassed to say that his, you know, he, he just wrote a book on populism. Mm-hmm. But anyway, he and his, you know, his take was, you know, it was very European, so mm-hmm. it was. It, I, I didn't find it completely applicable, but he did talk about populism. Doesn't matter, you know, who's bankrolling it. It's all in the uh, the rhetoric and the stance. And his definition uh, of, of populism. I mean, it, Trump is is perfectly right. It's it's creating is perfectly attuned to this scarily mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. that uh, there's there's an elite there's the people who you know who they are you speak for them whoever that you know you define the people and there's some kind of other group which is not the people and it's it's the balance of these things the elite as long as you rail against the elite they can be mm-hmm. <laughs> pain pain for you I mean how could some I mean this you know the Democrats endlessly tried to make Hey, with this, and got no traction from pointing out that Trump's big thing was that he was this rich schmuck who took pleasure in telling people they were fired. Why does that appeal to uh, to, to you know to laid off workers in the in the Rust Belt? It doesn't you know it doesn't make sense, but you know it it appeals to them because 
it seemed as if he was, you know, like uh, giving the bird to the powers that, that be. So funnily enough, uh, I think it was, yeah, it was in the 2012 election. Um, the theorist Lauren Berlant had this blog post called The Trumping of American Politics or something like that, in which she predicted avant la lettre and in a kind of <laughs> merely theoretical way that would be crudely literalized, <laughs> as we all now know. Um, she was talking about the other kind of slapdash spectacle at the Republican National Convention in 2012 when Clint Eastwood addresses an empty chair that is the vacated throne of Obama. And she says, this is basically the trumping of politics or Mm -hmm. the conversion of politics to an arena that is more suited to Donald Trump because he was the the host of The Apprentice, Mm -hmm. that his main mode was to say, you're fired. And in a country that had basically come to focus entirely on its economic anxiety without coming up with any kind of creative or generally just solutions to that economic anxiety. The only thing they could respond to was the language of dismissal and Mm -hmm. austerity. And I think Mm -hmm. that she puts it rather pithily. I hope I'm not misquoting, but she says, you know, Clint Eastwood basically tells the empty chair, you're fired. The empty chair is like the vacated position of somebody who's not doing the job right. And what's a president? Not somebody in whom we have very complicated ideological and aesthetic investments, but somebody who's in charge of making us all richer and more comfortable. And if the man who has, I think she says, the job of jobs can't do the job, he should be out of one. And it was funny how, in that sense, Trump represented this kind of eagle-eyed, ruthless economic logic but when Trump actually ran for president, it was a much more clumsier affair. That actually yeah. what she was predicting was a, a, a far more analytic version of the American people right. we actually have, um, who obviously are really susceptible to precisely the kind of ideological and aesthetic investments that she thought were being dismissed. Given Trump's track record with the press at his speeches and rallies, I don't think any of us in this room can definitively say what his supporters were or were not receiving. Really. Like, I think I'm sorry. Like, as I said in my intro, I'm from Iowa and I know these voters. And I think that the difference between someone being there, there's obviously a difference between someone being a racist and saying I'm a racist and someone doing something that is racist. And then you tell them that, you know, they're a racist and they get really upset and they shut down and they don't want to listen to you. However, you know, there are single issue voters. There are people who are only interested in the rights of the unborn and they don't understand what else is coming after that because they don't care about anything after that. You could say like, look, you know, like my friend who is trans is going to like lose all of their rights or, you know, like be completely disenfranchised in every imaginable way. My friends who are married might lose their marriage and all the benefits that come with that. And they'll be like, I don't care. They will not care. (laughs) Well, you know, uh, there's nobody in America who's ever going to admit that they're a racist, except for for David Duke. I mean, and the Pepe squad, they all right. right. And and actually I thought that Hillary, who's not, who's not someone I particularly admire, although I, would be lying if I <laughs> didn't say that I was by the end of this, I was like very invested of course. in her. I mean, uh, yeah. you know, but that she actually came surprisingly close to, to using the term systemic racism, which I don't believe Obama ever used. I mean, it's, he couldn't. No, I mean, I think that <laughs> yeah. was amazing that she, that she came up with that. And I, I think she was, atta- I, I forget how it, it, it played out in the, in the debates. But otherwise, you know, the racist is always another 
person. Yeah, exactly. And the, and the thing about what Trump did, and this is why he's like Andrew Dice Clay, mm -hmm. is that he was able to say outrageously xenophobic, you know, sexist, misogynist, racist things or, and, and, and innuendos. Um, but people thought that was just part of, you know, that was, that was the act. They, they, yeah. they enjoyed it. They enjoyed it. And they don't feel like it reflected on them. I mean, I think that the, the people, the, the Trump voters who are acting now, or they were for a while, like, very aggrieved. I mean, how could you call, you know, like, mm -hmm. after the deplorable yes. thing, which, you know, she put it badly. She should have, like, put it all on him and his deplorable rhetoric. Yeah. Rather than tell people, but they, you know, they understand that they enjoyed, they liked hearing. That's the whole thing of like, he's not PC. He's saying what we're thinking. Right. That was something that people said all the time, but somehow they weren't, you know, yeah. say he's saying xenophobic stuff, but they're not xenophobic. Yeah. I mean, I think that it was clearly some sort of slip of Clinton's to use the word deplorables to describe it what was come to be yeah. Yeah. millions of people <laughs> yeah. who she claimed to want to govern. Yes. Right. I think it was a telling slip. I actually think that in that moment, something was articulated that gave license to an entirely new realm of emotional reaction. Oh, totally. You can see that in what happened in the polls where it's like, it's not okay to even say to a pollster, I will vote for this man. It is so socially unacceptable that I can't even anonymously admit yeah. that I would do this. However, that aspect, I will say to bring it back to film, reminded me of a wonderful film, Experimenter by Michael Almereta, yeah. which is like focused on the Stanley Milgram experiments. And again, just like this idea of what was so dangerous about those experiments and like unacceptable is that it's getting at where social nicety gives into taking away people's rights. You know, he was curious about how could people do that? I can't say it, but in my heart of hearts or like, I feel like this person has this control over me, even though they're nobody, you know, mm -hmm. but uh, you know, I would say that despite her character flaws and weakness as a candidate, she she did win the popular vote, and actually, mm -hmm. the I I don't see Trump's victory as uh, overdetermined. No, I mean Certainly I think that not. he was no. he was a, he was a lucky 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 guy. And there's a Hegelian term for this, you know, when something <laughs> happens, you know, like out of the out of the historical, but you know, like the Kennedy assassination. I mean, that was like a stroke of luck that yeah. that that didn't have to happen. Even nine eleven, I think things had to break really really well. For that to go off as 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 they thought. This is Curtis's thesis, also. Well, he oh, thinks yeah. that it's a conspiracy. Um, not exactly. I thought that the point of the movie was that there are these things that seem like total ruptures. If you mm. actually take the time to go back and chart their origins, it's not mm -hmm. quite a conspiracy. It's a collusion of forces. But the idea that nine eleven or the proliferation of suicide bombs represents the destruction or like a rent in the fabric of our mode of reasoning he thinks is just like well actually you are looking in the wrong place um that you need to have a much more expansive vision of what constitutes political agency if you don't realize that it was only because we had short-circuited the diplomatic process in the middle east that suicide bombing even became appealing I mean, this is just a very long answer to say that his whole point is that the vocabulary of surprise is in some way part of the problem or what he considers to be the problem. Yeah, I, I okay. I see that if it wasn't, uh, to go back, if uh, Kennedy wasn't shot in Dallas, somebody else would have shot. I mean, there were plenty of people who wanted to uh, to get rid of him. Yes, that's that that's true. But, the, but you know, things don't always happen in the, uh, uh, for, for maximum cataclysmic uh, results. Having said that, I will now <laughs> reverse mm -hmm. and say that 
the most, what you were talking about before in terms of Trump's uh, successful manipulation of the media is part of a, a historical pattern, which was identified by Charlie Musser in this book about the, you know, politicking and the, the new media, I think it's called, which uh, he, he analyzes the use of motion pictures and proto-motion pictures, um, you know, these slideshows that, you know, stereopticon shows and, and also the phonograph and uh, telephone in the 1888, 1892, 1896, and, and 1900 elections, and talks about how the, the, the candidates and the parties were able to use this new media. And it's evident in this that the, that the candidate and party that, that, that made the best use of the, of the media won. And then if you read this book and you go, oh, yeah, and that's get this list, you know, like Roosevelt and Eisenhower mm -hmm. used television and, and even Nixon when he did his checkers speech before right. Kennedy made another use of, of television and even Bill Clinton mm -hmm. knew to go on MTV and Arsenio Hall. I mean, right. he had, you know, that, that, that the candidate who's the most media savvy, I mean, uh, I mean, I remember that, that there was a joke that um, uh, McCain didn't even know what email was, and he referred to the Google, you know, and my, my <laughs> elderly mother, she felt so great, you know, that she knew how to use email, and this fool, you know, <laughs> didn't, yep. you know, and, 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 you know, Obama had this whole thing going on on, on YouTube, right. so it's very chastening to realize that, that uh, um, uh, Clinton was so inept that she was, like, completely undone yeah. by her use of social media, whereas Trump was able to do something very powerful. And I don't think it's just Twitter. I think it's the combination of, of, reality, of reality TV mm -hmm. and, and, and Twitter. And that was, you know, people made, it was like this obvious point, you know, like those, those Republicans, oh, were they voting somebody off the island? But that didn't make it any less true. <laughs> well, they started the, the Republican primary began with about as many people as you might have on Survivor. Yeah. And I mean, I will say I watched all of the Republican debates and yeah. without a doubt, Trump really won that first one because he came in like a ball and he just showed how all of those candidates were completely weak. I mean, it was it was like I mean, this was the Democratic Party would not allow anyone else to run against Hillary Clinton, which is why Bernie Sanders stepped in. Uh, this is well documented. Don't, don't fight me. Um, <laughs> but like, it, but the the Republican field was just flooded with these absolute clowns, and it's like I'm sorry. Like, and then there was also something I found actually kind of admirable about Trump taking down the Bush dynasty. Like, what are the most powerful? political families in the U.S. like essentially can never run for public office again because he just completely slapped yes, Jeb. Yes, he, he was very, and I thought he was very entertaining when he uh, uh, made fun of Ted Cruz, who I regarded oh, yeah. as more dangerous. But, oh, he, yeah. But if I thought he was entertaining, that was... That's a problem. That, yes, and it was, it was true up until a point, but there yeah. were people who considered him entertaining... And still do. I mean, he's yeah. still doing a version of Survivor now, you know, Absolutely. on that top of Trump Tower. Well, I guess we should pull it back to film. Another film that I thought of, and I keep, at first I started thinking about it and I didn't know why. And then I, it kept coming to mind. And then I thought about it and it made sense, is uh, David Lynch's Lost Highway, mm. which is really like, because I watched the election at like a party. And I, there, there came a point oh, where I had to great. leave. I had to leave. I really, uh, yeah. I couldn't stand it because there was a moment when the New York Times like swingometer on their website. That was torture, by the way. Speaking of new media and the mm -hmm. way that oh, it manipulates the public. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, I, there was a girl there who, like, even though it said it was projection, she's like, this is false reporting. They can't, they should not be allowed. And I was like, this is happening. Yeah. And like that moment to me was like, you know, your face splits open and another person comes out and you're another person because <laughs> yeah. it went from 85% uh-huh. Hillary to 85% Trump and then it just kept going up. And then also, obviously, like the very simple language that's being used, like it's just totally functional, strange language. And yeah, just having that feeling of like looking in the cell and being like, that's not him. That's a different guy. <laughs> yeah. That's not who's supposed to be there. How did that happen? And not knowing. like, And then you're like, oh, well, actually, if I think about it, if I think, okay, that's how it happened. Anyway. Yeah. Well, let me, let me try something on you. Because I was yes. thinking of also television, which would have been much more uh, relevant. I mean, I, Trump, we don't even have to talk about. I mean, no. he, since he's a big television star. But, you know, there were endless, or it seemed like there were many, maybe it was only three mm-hmm. um, network series, you know, that were clearly preparing us or imagining Hillary, right? There's right. Veep and there's Madam Secretary and probably The Good Wife. and Saturday Night you know, Live, too, I will say. Saturday Night Live. Because they yeah. are very, like, with Tina Fey at the helm, I think mm-hmm. they are very engaged in the, this project of being like, you know who's really cool? Women in elected office. Uh, yeah, uh-huh. <laughs> They're super yeah. fun and, like, yeah. cool. Like, yeah. Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And I'm like, please don't make Ruth Bader Ginsburg yeah. into, like, that. Like, I understand what you're doing, <laughs> but, but it's... Tina Fey makes her own joke about that joke oh, on really? 30 Rock. No, it's one of the oh, yeah. best <laughs> moments of 30 Rock where she's talking about Joan of Snark, which is yes! <laughs> the fictional Jezebel. And she says, oh, Joan of Snark, it's where all these really cool feminists talk about, you know, what's happening with re- reproductive rights and also... <laughs> Which Supreme Court justices look the worst in a bikini? <laughs> Ruth Bader Ginsburg. <laughs> yeah. I was just like, this is, I mean, in a way that is typical for that show. Right. It lands perfectly in a point of ambiguity mm-hmm. that implicates you, but also mm-hmm. yeah. alienates you. Yeah. Uh, I was wondering, then I, you know, like, um, and of course, it, this is my favorite series, so I would I would look for it. You know, is the was The Americans. Yes. As, as in some way, weirdly... Prophetic, not because you know they there's a you know neo-fascist character in it, but um, and not even just because of the Russian thing, you know, where you you basically sympathize, but yeah. because the idea that you you never know what your neighbors are thinking, you know, I mean, your na- you know they they yeah. you don't know what's going on with them. Plus, there's like the, it plays into this this uh, xenophobic thing as well. So I throw that out there to see if. Uh, but if there's, you think the there's thing, anything to it. Because somebody asked me, they were like, well, how do you feel now that, you know, someone who is such a blatant racist misogynist is going to be the president? And I it was elected. Like people chose that. And I said, I'm not surprised. Because it's like if you experience sexism, if you experience racism, if you listen to people talk about these experiences of like microaggressions or straight up aggressive racist behavior, you're like, this is happening all over the place. And like it's no one has learned anything and we're just going to keep repeating this until like the polarized caps melt, which will be very soon. <laughs> I think. Yeah. I have to admit that I still was and am surprised even as somebody who <laughs> fancies himself rather yeah. attentive to these yeah. microaggressions. Yeah. What I thought made me clever was that I could ferret out the most micro of the microaggressions. <laughs> but I know I, I really flattered myself for thinking that these were the barely noticeable remnants of a dark way of acting and thinking that nobody would ever mm-hmm. 
live with themselves enough to actually act upon. I was amazed that you really can say and do things. I always thought were repressed, problematically repressed. Obviously, there's something kind of uh, unredeemed and... uh, unreflective about are you talking about trump or just the the discourse around good question i mean i think i'm talking about trump but i'm (laughs) i'm I'm, I'm thinking about the ways in which even my hyper attention to instances of racism or bigotry of all kinds Mm -hmm. actually did very little to prepare me for this yeah (laughs) well it's true i would say he's able to do this because it's show business Mm -hmm. that's why this to come back that that's why people loved it he could he could articulate these things and he would he would say i can't remember i mean it's you can't even you're my, I don't have the bandwidth, basically, <laughs> to remember it's all the telling stuff metaphor. that that he that 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 he did. But I, there was some really stupid thing that he said, and he said, "Oh, I was just kidding." Can't you take a joke? Yeah, Which the Second is, Amendment thing oh where he God. suggested yeah. assassinating her. Yeah. Where it's right. like, it's just a joke. Right. And I think he <laughs> said that. He said that. And then he said, it was a joke. Not. You know, I mean, it's just <laughs> this. So I and think and that, you're like, well, what just happened? And right. you don't know. What happened is he got up. He he was he was doing a show. Yeah. It, it's shtick. Yeah. Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> it just ends with us all just yeah. sighing. Yeah. Yeah. Again, you can't see how despondent we all look. Yeah. Yeah. No, and I mean, again, it's like when I say that, I'm not surprised. It's not like. Well, I saw this coming. I mean, like, it's like, it's sad. I'm not surprised. It's not like... I think it's okay to say that you never saw it coming. (laughs) Yes. I mean... No. Regardless of background, we live in a bubble and we get our... We probably all get our news from the same place. And uh, we live... I mean, they're, they're... the, the system, you know, the systems of like social media and just even like typing things into Google are designed to reinforce well, what we already know and I'll make forget, us feel like, you know, a sizable amount of your fellow citizens voted for somebody else. Exactly. Which always happens, but doesn't always feel this way. Exactly. Yeah, because the system's rigged. <laughs> 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 the final podcast. Yes! <laughs> <laughs> yeah oh my god all right well let's leave it there but before we close can we each go around and say one film we saw recently that we liked as opposed to uh something that reminds us of doom i'm going to say that i've been (laughs) i've been watching a lot of uh lucio fulci movies uh if you listen to the halloween episode i revealed that the beyond was like the movie that just terrifies me the most. So I was like, well, let's just dance with that feeling. So I watched um, Zombie for the first time because I'd been saving it because I think, you know, there are directors that if you like their work, just don't like, don't like binge on it, like save it for when you really need it, like now. And uh, Zombie's great. I can't recommend enough. The part where a zombie fights a shark is just, wow, it's so good. Um, and yeah, it's uh very scary and very beautiful, but also kind of rough around the edges in a way that is appealing to me. Well, I had the great uh, pleasure of spending uh, about 10 days in uh, Morelia, Mexico at a film festival. So I saw a number of movies by a Mexican director from the 40s, although his career lasted longer, but that was his good period, Julio Bracho. Very interesting stuff and um, completely unknown here. And I believe that uh, MoMA is going to uh, uh, do a series. So uh, different things, melodramas, comedies. I mean, you know, he, he worked in different and uh, various genres. And also while I was there, I saw Neruda for the second time. Mm. And I liked it the first time, and I liked it even better the second time. Very smart. 
political thriller. And so uh, I recommend that. I recently watched Speed. Oh. <laughs> I think I needed to. <laughs> In these stagnant times that are also fast-moving times. Yeah. Uh-huh. But I also saw... Um, a film that I hadn't seen in a while, which is Chris Marker's 2084. Mm. Um, it's about the labor movement in France, and it provides three possibilities for the future. It's made in 1984. The gray hypothesis, which is the hypothesis of crisis. The black hypothesis, which is a fascism. And the blue hypothesis, which is utopia. It's nice to know that there are more than two options. Uh, <laughs> I'm also looking forward to seeing the Warhol film, Drunk. Uh. <laughs> tomorrow (laughs) (laughs) yes well thank you all for coming this was wonderful thank you My name's Fariha Zaman. I was born in Cambridge, Massachusetts. I lived there until I was five, then moved to New York, and then at the age of 10, uh, I moved to New Delhi, India, and then Kathmandu, Nepal, came back to the States for college, and my parents were both born in Dhaka, Bangladesh. My name is Mina Sarni Linda Murrigan. I was born in Gainesville, Florida, and I grew up mostly in Indianapolis, Indiana, and went to school on the East Coast, and have been between Chicago and New York most recently. Um, My parents were born both in Tamil Nadu, India. My mom was born in a village and grew up in a village named Andhaputti. And my father grew up in a slightly bigger place called Mandurai. Well, thank you both for coming today. I think it's like really easy to sort of look at a political situation through the sort of like a cryptograph of a of a film. Maybe like, oh, yeah, who's who's a Slytherin in this situation? (laughs) Who's Dumbledore? That's bad. That's not what we're going to do. Uh, So today we're just going to be talking about films that we understand differently after the election result. I had sort of immediate feelings about being a filmmaker and the work that I do. Um, On election day, I was filming with my partner, Jeff Reichert, in um, Luling, Texas, which is a very rural area. It's for a longer feature that we hope to shoot sometime next year. So we're going to end up spending a lot of time in this community if I can continue to do so, which is one of the things that I think about. And then I was also part of um, a project that uh, Jeff Deutschman, who's a a filmmaker and um, an industry person for a long time, is doing where he assembled like 30, 40 doc filmmakers all over the country to film with a particular person on election day. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I'm a first generation Bangladeshi <laughs> queer Muslim brown mm-hmm. person, but a lot of my work has centered on working class white communities. And mm-hmm. n- I never expected to do that necessarily, but I think because I was born here, sound totally American, but then spent like most of my formative years living elsewhere, I have this real interest in exploring like what is the almost the alternate life that I could have had. I make these films about really regional American communities and I've never felt the way that I did then. Like this Mm -hmm. mounting Mm -hmm. sense all day of like, I don't want to be here. It's really hard to Mm -hmm. look these people in the eye. Mm -hmm. I'm one of those people who still believes but it's harder to do so in the long term that like isolating communities and dismissing entire swaths of the country is not actually effective to long-term change because yes. the, the point is you need votes to change. You need a majority to believe differently. You just do. But I had, I'm still struggling with it. And in particular on that day, just felt this growing thing of like, what is the point of the work that I do? Mm-hmm. Do I want to do that anymore? Can I make this movie? Yeah. You also grew up in the Midwest and yeah. just having like, 
you understand it's more nuanced than what everyone wants to make it out to be. Like that stupid article in the New York Times where it's like, we need to stop with the whole identity politics stuff because white people don't like that. They don't want to hear that. They're, you know, and it's like, no, the same people who have no concept of that part of the country have spent zero time there or, you know, they go there for like a week. They talk to a couple of people. Mm -hmm. They feel like they can speak knowledgeably about this and there's just no understanding and there's no attempt to understand which is what is that's the scariest thing for me where it's just like people are just doing the same things they're just going back into the same rhythms as they always have and people getting to fights on twitter and acting like that's real activism it's like no 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 but I'm so interested in this, this this project. Could you talk a little bit more sort of about you're saying like this is sort of like a larger thing that you would like to do. Um, I guess what what would that larger thing ultimately entail? This town is called Luling and um, they it's entirely built on oil money and the oil is starting to run dry. It's a really mm-hmm. small town, like 5,000 people. And not only uh, is this a big strain economically, obviously, but I think they're struggling to figure out what their identity is as a town going forward. And the other big thing that they have is this uh, watermelon festival every year that's been happening since the 50s. And the main event is they crown a local high school senior girl, the watermelon thump queen. (laughs) And uh, it used to be just sort of a fun ritual, but Mm -hmm. now the stakes are much higher because winning comes with scholarship money. You travel around the state representing the town of Luling. It's like I I compare it to um, being the high school football quarterback in an Ohio mill town. It's like this is your shot. And those shots exist even less for young women Mm -hmm. Um, and from the get-go one of the things that interested me was that it's not a pageant although it sounds like one and there Mm -hmm. are many pageants in rural texas it's an actual election like they have to run a campaign for several months they have to get a certain number of signatures it's based on whoever got out there and did the legwork and the other thing is that the demographics of the town have changed significantly over the last 10 years like they have this scrapbook of whoever wins thump queen gets to like make a page in in this incredible record of their history. It's like a club you're part of for life. And so you can see, like, it wasn't until 1985 or something that mm-hmm. they had the first black watermelon thumb queen. There have been maybe a handful of Latino watermelon thumb queens. And then in the last 10 years, that changing demographic of the town has exponentially increased. And I think initially we had the sense of, like, yeah, it's the sort of unobtrusive portrait of the town that tends to be the style that we have and and if a racial tension is part of it then of course we need to document that Mm -hmm. but like my first thought after the election was like I don't know if I can go back there Mm-hmm. And <laughs> and and now I'm thinking like, OK, well, if we do this, like it has to be a very different movie. Like there's no point in making it unless it's about that specific tension. And I think because one of the things that I thought about a lot and why I was so uncomfortable is like, you know, when someone is openly racist and mm-hmm. is just, like it, there are people who you can point to and say, like, well, that's just a bad person. That's just a mean person. I'm more disturbed and confused and upset by many of the kinds of people that I make movies with and about where it's like, no, they're good people. They're good neighbors. They would never be rude to me or to someone who lives next to them. But there's this sense of separation or this sense of like, I don't have a responsibility to that community. Like it's good enough to be a good neighbor. I don't have to vote against my conscience on abortion or healthcare or whatever issue that they're framing, even though to my mind, like those issues are not commensurate with protecting the basic human rights of all American citizens. Yeah. So I think there's something worth exploring there, but it is a, a 
challenge personally to do so. Right. Yeah. I think even what you're saying about being like good or like a good person, I think that's been a hard thing for me to sit with post-election because I think I'm almost coming back to there's a difference between having manners mm-hmm. and having, and, you know, especially I think a lot of stereotypes about the Midwest are people know how to be polite to one another. Yeah. Um, they know how to be kind. Uh, but then at the same point, there was something about the way that people voted, especially, you know, some people that I grew up with or I, the parents of those people where, you know, do you care about my humanity? Do you care about my parents' humanity? Mm-hmm. I was at your wedding. I was at, you know, like your kids, like christenings or um, all these things. And so then it's kind of what does good mean anymore? Um, and can you even hold yourself to that? Oh, at least I'm a good person kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah so. No, it's no, it's true. Like I, I watched all of the Republican debates and the, the, the popular line, the, you know, the, first of all, the questions between what was asked of the Republican debate and what was asked of the Democratic debate were just completely different. And there was very little crossover when the two parties sort of came together. But there would always come this part where it'd be like, well, President Obama doesn't want to say the words radical Islamic terrorism. And he also didn't want to say that when a white guy shoots up a school, there's a mass shooting. That's yeah. terrorism. He never mm-hmm. he never said that either. And I think that gets compartmentalized and understood in a different way. And it's just like there are these clear parts of national discourse that, you know, in the media, through politicians, there needs to be like a change in how we discuss these things. And that's why it's so hard to see people just sort of railing on the same points. And obviously over the weekend, there was a whole situation where Mike Pence went to see Hamilton. He got booed which he seemed totally fine with. Um, <laughs> um, other people, you know, thought it was like this whole lack of decorum and disgustingness. Mm-hmm. But, in, in, you know, there's a good argument to be made that was actually sort of a smokescreen for the Trump University settlement. However, it obviously, that brings up the issue of free speech. As a filmmaker, do you feel like there that is a legitimate threat? Because obviously Trump, you know, he's very litigious. He loves to sort of go after, and he said that he wants to sort of tighten controls on the media and make them more responsible. But do you feel like that's a legitimate thing or do you feel like the First Amendment will prevail? Absolutely feel like that's a legitimate fear. It's mm-hmm. so hard to see, you know, like, I mean, we're, we're, it's, I'd rather err on the side, not of panic, don't panic, but I'd err on the side of caution mm-hmm. in our expectations of the future so that we're no, we're not complacent or feel like I, I'm, I'm sick of one more person telling me like, oh, it's not going to be that bad. They're not going to register Muslims. <laughs> and it's like, well, you, this, you know, I also They've deep down didn't think that They've this person would be able, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. It, it happened during the Bush administration mm-hmm. for anybody who was an immigrant to the country right. and mm-hmm. from a Muslim country. And then you had to report to the um, you had to report to security every time you moved, even domestically. Right. So there's also the no fly <laughs> list. Yeah. But yeah. 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 So, yes, I think that could happen. Um, and it, I, I make movies, but I also write and I work for like journalistically driven short film commissioning company called Field Division, we publish films online and our a sister site of The Intercept. So it's been really interesting because I've been a documentarian for a while, but mm-hmm. I have never worked out of a news site before. Mm-hmm. And being in that environment in times like these, I feel an even greater sense of being the media, I yeah. guess, yeah. That, that this is this is also a kind of my people that is under threat. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Trump specifically has said things out loud like, well, the media just gets to say whatever they want. Without uh, understanding that the, that's exactly the point. It's said as yeah. a criticism or, you know, a platform mm-hmm. of sorts. And it's like, but that is a constitutional right to do so. Yeah. Just 
like you can say whatever you want. So, I mean, I guess I don't understand as well as I could the mechanisms by which that could happen. Mm -hmm. But there are some easy clamps to make in the get go, even if you're not overturning, you know, constitutional law. Yeah. Yeah. I think I've been teaching this with my students, but just the process of normalization of different discourses, just the way in which, you know, I was walking down like 8th Avenue and it was this uh, ad for Cosmopolitan magazine. Like, let's get to know more about Reince Priebus. And I was just like, one, gross. Two. (laughs) (laughs) And then two also. Yeah. You know, but then the way in which these kinds of popular magazines are trying to you know, normalize these figures um, that, you know, and Ryan's Peebus is probably one of the more moderate people, Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, but still like that kind of way in which, you know, people will probably do a feature on Ivanka. And- well, and for some time, it's been frustrating to me to have to look, ha- to, to have had to look at the two candidates that we had right. as equal and to be treated <laughs> with the same sort of seriousness. Yeah. But it became a situation where, out of just out of fairness and in the interest of preserving democracy like yeah they both have a right to speak to their platforms in the mm-hmm. same way during mm-hmm. a debate but i was like how how is that possible how mm-hmm. do we have to look at this person in the same way as hillary which for uh, there there are issues that i had with her mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. campaign but um not just there's not the same thing yeah and there was no yeah. recourse to vent that or do anything about that a thing that I heard a lot when I was filming was people in these small towns would say like, oh, I think they're both terrible. They're, they mm. both seem terrible. Yeah. It's just like mm-hmm. one of those years where it's we're, it's just a loss for America regardless. And I don't feel good about voting for Trump. And I'm doing so for the following reasons. But, you know, like I'll, I'll consider it a vote for Mike Pence. And just goes to show like how it's oh. not it's <sighs> not it's not just like what we are able to the narrative we're able to put forward as the media, but also the narratives that are hidden because somebody has a bigger bullhorn. So in this mm-hmm. case, like Mike Pence is a huge racist. Yeah. He's, and he's, <laughs> all, he's round. He's like terrible in every he's way. Yeah. And, and more consistently than Trump actually yes. yeah. in his yeah. career upheld these bigoted principles, but because he's not the loudest right now, yeah. you know, people can fall back on this idea because his narrative has faded from the limelight for the time being. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's like scary to think like one person being an opportunist and the other one being like, no, he really, that's his conviction. (laughs) Yeah. 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 Do you guys want to talk about films that you understand a little differently now? So I'll say the film society is having a Paul Verhoeven retrospective right now. And um, it's really weird to watch Robocop. It's Mm. impossible to watch Starship Troopers right now, at least for me. I I try to like watch and I was just like, oh my God, I can't. But we were talking afterwards, Linda, and you had said that, you know, being there was something that kept coming to mind for me. That was such like a mm-hmm. Bush era movie. And now it's like, no, this is the real, this is the yeah. real thing. <laughs> yeah. It did feel, it, yeah. I mean, I think I just like yelled that out loud when I was watching some sort of coverage. It's like, it's like being there, this is being there, <laughs> but you're right. Uh, there's something more mean spirited though about this. Mm-hmm. Whereas I feel like with, I mean, it was very against Bush obviously, mm-hmm. but at the same time there was something so, you know, Everyone would always say, oh, I want to have a beer with that guy. Right. I can't imagine. Even though he doesn't drink. Yeah. Well, maybe, you know, we could take like a, a wine and paint class, right? I think that would be like his his thing. But uh, Like pottery, painting. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. But that kind of way in which you could just rise to power 
and on saying very little, yeah. you know. The other film that we talked about that night, I think, was the recent documentary about Gore Vidal and like and William F. Buckley. Mm-hmm. I think the Best of Enemies, I think. And I I enjoyed watching it partly just out of, you know, doing like TV history and it's what I study. But it's interesting to see how divided the country was then. And and in many ways, you know, I think people an analysis of talking about Trump, they there was, you know, a callback to Nixon, there was a callback to Reagan. But it was interesting to see the coverage of these of these conventions and how, at least with Gore Vidal and William F. Buckley, they seem more comfortable with being very confrontational with each other. Mm-hmm. And also part of that is ABC was doing that for ratings. So yeah. having them be very confrontational with each other worked out. But I liked the fact that I think Vidal calls him a crypto fascist Nazi. And you can see William F. Buckley get so upset about that and how that was such an insult to like Republicanism yeah. or conservatism to be called that. And it's just such a very different place that we're in now when people really really take hold of that fascist mantle you know with glee which is really scary yeah even tequila tequila was just, just like this weird return of the bush years but with the nazi armband spin on it i've been thinking a lot not just since the election but over the last like year or two about um uh, really explicitly activist films because you know, there's this like moment in the 90s where a sense of a documentary must be this existed. Yeah. So if anything, in the longer term, I have been really vocal in talking about how I don't have, I'm not under any responsibility to be a journalist or an activist in making a documentary film. Mm-hmm. And I've made films that like have, are, are like ostensibly about a social issue, but then that's not the experience of watching them. And sometimes you have very frustrated audience members who are like, well, you didn't tell me how to fix healthcare. <laughs> it's because like, well, I, I don't know how. Um, <laughs> I wanted you to like feel feel compassion so that you might think um, differently about whether or not, you know, we can't agree as a country about whether or not all people deserve basic health care. So I'm coming from that perspective. Right. And I still believe that. And I'm not, I'm not and will never be like a, there's only one way to make a good film, a good documentary or, or what have you kind of person. But I think my interest and tolerance and especially in thinking about um, what makes a, a really explicitly political film more effective has increased a lot. And I was thinking about that um, when when I watched um, The 13th, the mm-hmm. Ava DuVernay mm-hmm. film that opened New York Film Festival this year. And there was a lot of, first of all, I think that some people have this like fetishization of um, verite. Where it's like, if it's not a verite documentary, <laughs> right. you know, it's 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 like not meaningful. Or, it's or lying important. to you. Right. It's edited. Or like, oh, it's like, it's cheap or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And also some sort of legit filmmaking criticisms, which I shared, which I I thought it was a little too long that, you know, Mm -hmm. it it grew repetitive towards the end. But I also had this feeling of like, who who gives a fuck? Like, I want something that looks like this. I want something that is aggressively, relentlessly, explicitly political. And it's really effective as an essay film, which is not and which is not to put it down as a film period and that it's Mm -hmm. just a piece of activism. I think that it's really smartly put together. It recontextualizes things that we are inured to seeing on the internet every day mm-hmm. and and places them in the higher context of you know this very slow move for social justice yeah. so I think my my feelings about that and what I'm what I'm looking for in my like wider film viewing has really shifted and I'm I'm still like kind of teasing out do I want to make different kinds of things and mm. soon and now right yeah I mean uh speaking of that I I, I think I mean, I've been thinking a lot about Michael Moore, too, because Mm. after 
several years away he's come back now and he's come back <laughs> with this you know he has to speak for the little guy um in a very i think cloying way and i think a very unhelpful way and you're just thinking about how fahrenheit 911 that was box office great you know best selling highest ranking mm-hmm. uh, documentary of all time and yet what was the the conversations were not about what was actually in the film the issues sort of raised in the film it was about what is documentary truth and like how is michael moore distorting these things mm. and the and the conversation shifted because it was not well made and the the things that he was trying to do to make it more compelling to viewers actually undermined its legitimacy and made it less palatable and and you know now it I mean, I haven't seen his anti-Trump documentary, which is like, I don't want to see a movie that somebody like him made in like three months. Like, I just don't (laughs) want to subject myself to that torture. But like, where to invade next? Where it's just like these very, again, these just very poor, blatant manipulations of, you know, misrepresenting these countries and what these programs are and what the U.S. actually is invested in doing and like just being very frustrated by that and mm-hmm. and thinking like well yeah again like how do we change discourse to be effective because right now it's just this echo chamber of social media and i still mm-hmm. think that sometimes a film that is less explicitly political is actually more politically effective yeah um yeah. because you you know i not to be cheesy but like you let people make up their own minds or you know you Mm -hmm. you have a different experience in which you're not being told and you don't have this sort of very natural human response to rail against it Mm -hmm. or 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 chafe against it but I think there's more like I don't know I think we need both yeah Yeah, Mm -hmm. I and and I don't know that I felt as strongly that way before I mean I almost think with Fahrenheit 9-11 too I I almost watched it the weekend after um the election but I also didn't love it as a film but at least in terms of the compilation of all the news footage yeah i I was looking for i I don't know i enjoyed watching it on that level alone just to see the ways in which the different people in power were talking about our politics the kind of language they used just showing i also really i like the opening of that where they showing them getting ready for the camera oh yeah yeah yeah. i think that was actually probably one of the more powerful moments of that film oh totally yeah because how do we talk about people in power? And I think that there's some way in which, you know, I think Barack Obama is like intensely charming Mm -hmm. and I'm definitely going to miss him as like a public figure and his family, obviously. um, And Michelle, but I think there's a lot of times in which they're so charismatic that we have difficulty sometimes, well, not maybe don't want to say we, but I think a lot of people have difficulty critiquing the actual policies yes um and very violent acts mm-hmm. um and so kind of going back to that moment of 9-11 of Fahrenheit 9-11 just that way in which people had a little bit they were easier to critique and I think yeah. part of it was sometimes about cheap shots made at their appearance or cheap shots made at the lack of charisma that any of them had but you know how do we do that now you know how do, how do we critique people in power but in a way that's effective because there's a way in which also satire i think it's very much important but then where is it pushing us toward to that point uh obama had what are his actual legacies like he's greatly expanded this drone program mm-hmm. we're in at least five different sort of like conflicts right now proxy wars basically like these are these are really serious things when you see people at the White House crying, when you see the staff crying, like 
maybe they're not crying because they're sad that this weird orange guy is coming in. They're sad because this weird orange guy is going to take control of these very dangerous things that have been pushed through and there was no popular anti-war movement, popular anti-surveillance movement to fight against it. And a lot, and it's like a lot of that pushback, to be honest, came from people who are maybe like libertarian, a little bit right of center. In the previous conversation, we talked about uh, Chris Marker a little bit Mm -hmm. and also Adam Curtis's hypernormalization. Chris Marker is my favorite filmmaker. (laughs) (laughs) I love Chris Marker. I mean, yeah, because it was when I saw Sans Soleil, I was still a teenager and had that moment of, um, oh, films can be like this. Like (laughs) it can be this, this like just a visual translation of like memory and feeling Mm -hmm. in a way that I um, hadn't seen before, as opposed to like narrative structures Mm, that are proscribed and can still create a great film, but it's like, these are your options, A, B, C, D. So like really blew my mind. Um, And then also as somebody who did come from a a very mixed background and Mm -hmm. grew up moving a lot, like it, it just made so much sense to me that you have this sort of patchwork of, Mm -hmm. of understanding the world. Um, and I'm I'm curious in what context Chris Marker came up because yeah. he does make some some very explicit films, but then I also think there's a power in the ones that are not necessarily about politics because representation matters, and it's like mm-hmm. a, a just like making a film with an other perspective is an act of rebellion, and there's something to that in his work. Well, he was it specifically Toby Hazlett brought this up. He was talking about this moment in I believe it's Grin Without a Cat, where he's talking about mm. the formation of the right you know, and sort of like the absurd aesthetics of the right and like how those were laughed off and how they try to sort of be invisible or gauche. Mm -hmm. And then you don't see it. They're like easier to like not see. I thought Mm -hmm. about um, Far From Vietnam when you brought up Chris Marker, just Mm -hmm. because, you know, which she sort of aggregated it's all it's multiple pieces from different filmmakers, but it's, I think it was made sort of early in the war Mm -hmm. and, uh, that moment where you know something terrible is going to happen mm. and the mm. and like deciding particularly if you're an activist or an artist like when do i have to say something about this when yeah. um should i be scared and angry and i feel like that film the 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 feeling of being on a precipice is so palpable and it had already got, gotten a little further but i or further in, into the war at that point like there was there there were obviously atrocities occurring that they needed to discuss more deeply before other countries also got involved and yeah I I have that feeling now like something Mm -hmm. bad is about to happen and it's so you can feel it in the air Mm. yeah I've been wondering also then when that happens like what is the responsibility as like a critic as a filmmaker as Mm -hmm. a scholar at what moment do you step in or try to intervene or you know, there's something to be said about let's wait till all this bad shit happens and I'm going to make this really cogent argument about it, you know, and sort of like the risk you take to, you know, you might not know what's going to happen, but then, you know, what is your role in participating in it, trying to intervene? Mm. Yeah, I just think it's like a, it's a hard question, but it feels really urgent right now. And I also have been thinking about representation again, which I know is like, like a little bit of a buzzword everyone wants to talk about intersectionality and and representation but obviously it's it matters it's so important and as much as you know you can't have the experience of any particular race that you're not part of like the way in which different races are discussed or treated shifts so much so like the way in which black people are treated in this country has a particular history and brutality and institutionalized injustice mm-hmm. one thing that i've i've noticed being a muslim person is like it's not just 
since Trump became the uh, Republican nominee that I've been having this mounting feeling of like, why are you allowed to use actual racial slurs to talk about my people in a way Mm -hmm. that you can't openly do about black people anymore. You can't openly do as about gay people anymore. It still happens, but there's some sense of backlash. And again, this is not like a, you know, pain Olympics or something. No, (laughs) It's it's a real race to the bottom. It's just like that, that keeps shifting. And right now it's completely tolerated by people on the right and the left to talk about the Islamic community in a certain way, such that words that started off as slurs mm. are now just incorporated as an acceptable term to use. Mm. And I I don't want to be nostalgic, but I do think that there was like a push an independent film in the 90s that was more inclusive or that at least had a slightly more variety in terms of the roles in which you saw people of color Mm -hmm. especially for for like desis like there was this whole spate of like you know like mississippi masala and like baji on the beach and like (laughs) okay you just see brown people doing stuff and it didn't necessarily have to be about their background necessarily um and it would be so nice to see like more films that just included muslim people doing stuff or i was thinking about my beautiful laundrette actually which is another one of my favorite films and it's you know Mm -hmm. it, it, it it involves queerness and being second generation or first generation rather uh being muslim and brown in a country that doesn't totally accept you as such and it's like it doesn't necessarily talk about those things or Mm -hmm. nobody's out there saying like, well, as a Muslim, here's my (laughs) experience. It's, it's just watching that life. And I remember um, reading in this this, like Vanity Fair article last year. So I don't know how accurate this statistic Uh is, but something there, it it was something like 38% of Americans know a Muslim person period. So if your only experience is through film, then you have either nothing or terrorists. Yeah. And I think also along those lines, and this is like, yeah, I have that like 90s nostalgia for that moment. Also, because I also think, you know, like Mississippi Masala was like really important for my own development in life or something. But, you know, a lot of those are these like transatlantic co-productions. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, especially how thinking about the Brexit, thinking about Trump, what kind of artistic collaborations is that going to make possible for like brown and black folk? across like in these like different national contexts and how are they going to you know build political solidarity but also like artistic solidarity yeah which is like scary i mean and ways in which you know maybe being you know having such intense um like authoritarian governments in both spaces it there's a way in which it kind of pushes you to collaborate more together but also like what channels are that is that going to happen under yeah film under bush with the exception of like a boom in uh, issue-driven documentaries. Fiction film really didn't respond to it in a in a very like serious way. And I also don't think that fiction film kind of let Obama off the hook for a lot of stuff too that happened during his presidency. And so it's like, yeah, it sucks that now that people's backs are really against the wall, like will those funding bodies be able to come through? Mm-hmm. Will I mean, it's, it's ne- I mean, obviously you, I, I don't need to tell you, like it's never been harder to get a movie funded. Like even Kickstarter is not really an option for a lot mm-hmm. of people anymore. Cause people are just kind of done with that model. And it, that's really scary. So it's like, where is that, that independent voice, that contrarian voice going to come through? But then also you have to give props to things like, I have, I have issues with this show, but still it sort of gets the job done where it's like Modern Family, where it's like, 
that has actually went over hearts and minds in terms of like gay couples. Like before, like I know people who are like, well, I don't know about that. And then they see that <laughs> show and then they're like, Oh, okay. just, just like our family. Right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and it's like, and that's why it's like so grotesque to me that there would ever be an argument like against identity politics. Cause that's the key to understanding walking up to somebody and being like, you're a racist, you're a sexist. It's, it's not like you're telling them they're wrong and they're just going to shut down. And it's like, if you're like, well, this is my experience and this is why it hurt me and I'm just as much of a human being as you are and there's not like a limit on how much justice that can go around. Like it's infinite as long as we allow it to be infinite. Like, so that's why it's like killer for me that like less of that. Let's <laughs> chill out on the representation. But anyway, I guess we can wrap it up because it's getting a little late. But before we close, <laughs> as we always do, it would be great if we could each say one film we saw recently that we liked. I can start... I saw In Our Time, which is a sort of an omnibus film. You know, it had Edward Yang in it. And yeah, it was, or he was one of the directors, uh, this really wonderful coming of age story of a young girl sort of blossoming sexuality. And yeah, it was just really great to see something like that. That was uh, it. And it's only it's on Amazon streaming because they have a lot of great things that you could never really see before mm -hmm. now on there. So I can't recommend it highly enough. And it's completely outside of what we've been talking about. <laughs> um, I flew to Utah this weekend mm. and watched a parade of dumb movies on the plane. Nice. that's what it's for oh yeah um <laughs> yeah so that's like what's what's recently on my mind but i did watch sing street on the way out there oh. and i think if you need a respite from like a like a something that speaks to your feeling of rebellion and dissent and resistance mm. but you but you need to also like have a dash of like youthful hope in there <laughs> um it's it's great for that. You know, it's just, it's just, um, uh, about the feeling of otherness and that I, I don't think that it says like, well, once you find your niche, everyone will love you. It's that like, no, it continues to be hard and you accept it and you fight the way that you can and you find avenues, um, that support you and give you an outlet. And I felt oddly emotional watching it. And I think not just because of the altitude. Yeah. <laughs> This is something I watched, I think, on Amazon streaming, Four Lions, which came out yes. some years ago. And it was funny because I, you know, I think I was I was visiting my my parents back in Indiana like a, like a week or two ago. And, you know, I gave my option, gave my option to my dad. OK, this kind of like bleak comedy, but sort of a critique on like terrorism and like being Muslim. Like, do we want to do this or we can watch some, you know, kind of more showy uh like south indian musical he's like no let's do this let's do it <laughs> we watched it and it was like a mix of like sad because it felt you know very like this is made bef like before obviously everything that is happening now but at the same time so many of like the feelings it elicited felt so present again but at the same time it also makes you laugh because there are like some really wonderful moments about you know, like, how do you do a bombing when you're in, like, this really hilarious mascot costume, yeah. you know? So it's, like, but, um, and the performances are really good. And, yeah, kind of going back to what you said, like, the importance of representation um, and the kinds of stories you can tell. Like, I think it felt, it was really wonderful to watch it just because I'm I'm nervous about thinking what's going to be possible. And so as much as we can try to keep producing things like that, uh, and then also, like, kind of going back to, what are the kind of like overlooked projects that we're really trying to say something different? When that movie came out, I interviewed the, the filmmaker mm -hmm. and 
He's extremely sharp, which you can tell in the film because it's a really fine line to walk this like terrorist comedy where you're like, I want you (laughs) to like understand how radicalization happens, but also like laugh about it, but not in a way where you dismiss this as the uh, way of an entire people. Yeah. Really tricky thing to do. I remember I, I, towards the end, I like got a little bit flustered because he was just outpacing me and I was pretty (laughs) new to writing. And I said something like, well, I mean, it's, I just I really appreciated that you you know you humanize people that can be really difficult to relate to as they're like on this path towards religious radicalism Mm -hmm. and he said why should it be so hard to make a human seem human Mm. damn damn yeah, Mike. Good mic drop. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> from like, from seven, seven years ago or something. Yeah. I love I love the Club Penguin parody thing though, where, where they're like trying to. Anyway. Yeah, <laughs> it's a great oh movie. God. Yeah, it's so funny. Um, <laughs> but thank you guys so much for coming. Thank you. Ooh. You've been listening to the Film Comet podcast, produced by Violet Luca and Nicholas Rapold, and edited by Michael Odmark. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. Film Comment is a bi-monthly magazine published by the Film Society of Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has featured in-depth reviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, art house, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com slash subscribe to purchase a digital or print subscription to the magazine. Film Comment, at the heart of film culture for over 50 years. <laughs>